Thank you so much for downloading this episode of So What Do You Really Do, the podcast where I, your host, Deader Dennis Maller, speak to artists and entertainers about their day jobs. And on the podcast today is not just a comedian, not just an actor, not just a writer for TV, but he is also the uh, probably I'm going to I'm going to give him the title of the best comedy historian out there. Uh, Mr. Wayne Fetterman, uh, author of The History of Stand Up. Uh, Wayne Fetterman is a comedian. You would recognize his face if you saw him. He's been on. A lot of things, small roles in, in movies and TV shows here and there. You would definitely recognize him. In fact, we even opened up the podcast talking about some of his acting roles. Uh, I, I'm so glad to that I got to talk to him on here because he had a podcast about the history of stand-up and it was delightful to hear. And now that he's written a book about the history of stand-up that expels, expands, expels? No, it doesn't expel because that would be throwing things out. It expands more of the history that you would have heard on the podcast. So if you're a fan of stand-up comedy, and you want to know the roots of stand-up comedy or where things came, or you just want to get more knowledge about other comedians, the book is a perfect place for you to start reading on that, especially if you're a comedian or a comedy fan. Uh, I am both, obviously. If I'm going to be a stand-up comedian, I'm also going to be a stand-up fan, one would think. Speaking of a stand-up comedy, I basically just had to turn off Clubhouse just so I could record this intro. I have been on Clubhouse nonstop uh, since I got the app, and it's been... Eh. <laughs> it's basically Reddit for the illiterate. That's basically what it is. It's you're going into different rooms and talking to different people, but instead of typing back and forth, you're you're listening to them talk or you're talking to them. But it's been a fun experience. I've been in a lot of stand-up comedy rooms and some writer's room for TV writers and stuff and just, you know, just hang out with other people and getting to know them. The social part of social media. And I am enjoying it. I don't know if you're on Clubhouse or if anybody else is out getting there. Maybe I'll try and talk Wayne into doing a history of stand-up uh, or a stand-up history Q&A Clubhouse. Maybe. We'll see. I don't know. Uh, but I had a good time talking to Wayne Fetterman. This, again, of course, I did this in conjunction with Dig Boston. So you can read our, our conversation uh, at digboston.com or have it delivered right to your mailbox now that Dig Boston is. It's been a while since I wrote for something for Dig because, let's be honest, during the pandemic, what is there to write about? There's very little to no stand-up comedy happening. There's a lot of stand-up comedy happening on Zoom, and I'm doing a lot of it. I am a fan. Mm, I don't hate Zoom comedy. To me, you're telling jokes in front of people. It's not that different than any other medium of stand-up, if you ask me. You're just in a different place in a different environment. You're telling it to a webcam, but you're still telling it to people. It's best when the people are unmuted and participating and laughing. But it's still no different than being, you know, telling jokes at a bar or a club. Except if you, you definitely can hear those people laugh. At least in live, they're laughing. Well, sometimes. I mean, there's plenty of comedy shows I've been on where people are watching, they're paying attention, but they're not laughing. They're just sitting there staring at you. They're not reacting. And then after the show, they come up to you and it's like, hey, man, you're really funny. I really enjoyed that. I'm like, did you? Did you really? Because you didn't look or sound like you were enjoying it. So... But on the subject of virtual comedy, I am enjoying it at least. Uh, it's better than doing nothing, I guess. Anyway, so that's why I haven't written a lot of articles because there's not a lot about comedy to talk about right now, uh, especially here in Boston where there are so few, like Boston comedy basically just gave up during the pandemic. You know, there was a lot of shows and outlets and everybody pretty much was like, no, it's not the same. No, I don't want to do it. Uh, and they just sat around and waited for months and months thinking that this was going to end quickly. I mean, I'm not, don't get me wrong. I was a believer that this was not going to last past Memorial Day of 2020. Boy, was I wrong. And I'm willing to admit that I was wrong. But 
here we are almost a year later, very close to a year later. And we're almost, we're still not even open back up uh, at the end of the month, March, uh, beginning of April, Massachusetts might reopen some things. That's what we're looking at. That's what they're telling us that we might reopen and go back to doing live shows. Um, maybe we'll see, but in the meantime, there's been nothing else really to write about. And I'm glad that Wayne Fetterman wrote this book and put it out and that it came across, uh, my, my inbox, uh, from, from his publicist, because I wanted to talk to him about this. I enjoyed his podcast. I enjoy the history of standup and, and hearing about it. And we talk about a couple other things that, uh, I wanted an expert opinion in the history of standup, a, a standup comedy historian. I wanted his opinion on things. So it was a really good fun chat. Uh, and I'm really glad they connected. But like I said, I'm going to try and get him to do maybe him and find other uh, comedian experts, uh, stand-up comedy historians to do maybe like a Clubhouse Q&A or something. One way to find out. Follow me on Clubhouse at Dead Air Dennis or on social media. But anyway, thank you again for downloading this episode. And please enjoy my conversation with comedian, actor, and stand-up historian, Wayne Fetterman. This, uh, thanks for, for joining me. It's very fortuitous that, uh, that we would be talking today because just the other day I saw you, uh, like the day before I got the email about your book, I saw you in a movie and I'm like, oh yeah, Wayne Fetterman. And it was, uh, what was it that I was watching? It was Funny People. That's what it was. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Barely in that, but uh, yes. Well, that's what I find it, one of the things interesting about you and you make reference to it because I think uh, you have an album or there's articles about you that of the, the comedian you didn't know you know. Uh, you've done a right. what ninety different TV and movie appearances because that, clearly I am DB'd you uh, in preparation for this. Are there thank you? Are there any of those like small uh, you know cameos or small roles like that that you just completely have forgotten that you were even in it until it like shows up or someone reminds you of it? Not really. I sort of remember every because it's like that's the whole goal of my life was to do these kind of jobs where you're like on a movie set or on a, a television set. Um, but as the most part, I, I not only do I remember them, I remember like what I was feeling when I was driving to the set and if I was late and stuff like that. So for the most part, I think there might be an early television thing that I was like, I don't even remember doing this thing. But as a rule, no, I, I, I remember them. Even even Baywatch, even Baywatch. <laughs> well, who could forget being on the set of Baywatch? That's most people's dreams. Yeah, well, it wasn't on the beach. It was in a bookstore, <laughs> but still. Oh, ba- something. Baywatch, the show that took place, uh, one episode took place in a in bookstore, a- even though nobody yeah. in the show could read. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> well, uh, that's, I, I, I'm, I admire that you can remember all those because I, uh, 2018, 2019, I did a lot of background work here in Massachusetts on movies and TV mm-hmm. shows, and I have a hard time remembering which projects I am. Now, granted, my entire role is just to show up, get two free meals, wait for a paycheck, and not look at the camera. That's all I have to do. I don't have to memorize lines. I don't even need to know what's going on. I'm just standing somewhere and making sure I don't fall down. Um, so it's easy for me to forget what projects I'm on because half of them don't even have real names when I'm working on them, so... Gotcha, gotcha. No, to tell you the truth, I'm part of that world. I've also done background work many times. Excellent. In addition to being a stand-up comedian and acting, you're also a writer on a lot of things. And I'm always curious because in comedy, there's so many different avenues for writing. Like there's, you know, uh, you know, long-form writing. There's monologue writing. 
There's, uh, you know, what we're doing right now, which is, you know, talking about, you know, interview writing, talking about the, the business of comedy. There's writing for shows. There's writing for movies. And then. Wait, you're saying what we're doing right now is writing? Well, uh, is that what you just <laughs> tried to do? Technically. Am I, am I supposed to not just ignore that <laughs> no, statement? No, I am very open with the fact of what my writing is as a writer for a newspaper. What I do is I record my conversations, have a computer translate, translate it. I give it to my boss who edits it and, and grammar checks it. And then they mail me a check. I am, I am, I am stealing from a nonprofit. That's basically what I'm I doing gotcha. as a writer. How how accurate is your computer translation of trans of those transcripts of the audio? How how good is that? Is it gotten better? Oh, it's gotten great. Like how long? I think it's been- great. Um, te- uh, I use a service called Temi. T E M I. I'm writing it down. They're, they've raised their price to twenty five cents a minute, which is a little pricey. Because um, mm-hmm. it used to be ten cents a minute, but I think for the price of even at that higher price, I think it's well worth the money. I still have to go back and do tweaks and edits here and there, but for the most, I mean, if I released just the unedited version, everyone would completely, totally understand the conversation that's going on. Like it tags our okay. voices, and it, it's pretty accurate, and it's only gotten better over the past two or three years that I've been using it. So a lot of the computers are doing these jobs. Yeah, um, but so back to, on the question of of, of writing. What is yeah. for someone who is written for uh, award shows? What's the difference yeah. between writing for award shows and writing like uh, on Jimmy Kimmel as a monologue writer? Well, first of all, it was Jimmy Fallon, Fallon. so I wouldn't know what it's like <laughs> to work on Jimmy. We can cut Sorry, that out wrong. if you're too embarrassed. My 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 bad. I I I, I had a fifty fifty chance of late night Jimmys, and my brain went to the wrong one. Of course. Of course. Um, so, uh, it's Jimmy. Writing for late night is a groundhog day job. So you do it, you wake up, I got you, babe, comes on the radio, and you're like, I just did this job yesterday. I just did. (laughs) It's the same job every day. It's really very, it's a grinder. That is a grind job. Whereas writing for an award show, it's like, oh, you're doing all this work focused on one day in the future, and then when it's done, it's over. And then you, you know, drink or something like that at the after party and, you, and you're done. So it's, it's just a whole different mindset of writing for those two things. Now, since you've done so many of those award shows, you're an expert mm-hmm. in writing for an award show. Have you brought in other writers from other mediums, like, say, a sitcom writer who's coming into an wow. award show for the first time? And have you had to coax them into, that's great for a writer's room, but that's not going to work in this medium? No, because usually I am not the guy hiring someone, so I, I really haven't had that situation. When I was at uh, Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, we had a lot of stand-ups on the staff, so I I loved that. So we had Anthony Jeselnik, believe it or not, was writing jokes for Jimmy Fallon and, and Morgan Murphy, and it was just a very fun environment. It's just a fun environment just to go to work. Now, as the head writer at Fallon, uh, were you in charge of hiring? Um, head monologue writer. Yes, I did hire some monologue writers there. Yes. But that was, again, those were guys who just were sending in jokes and like, hey, can you it was, can you see if these are good enough to be on the show? And so when it's a slot opened up, we had a competition and I did hire a guy who was actually living with his parents in Massachusetts when he got the gig. Uh, but so what I'm curious about as uh, when it comes to hiring comedians for writing for late night, what exactly are you looking for from comedians in like a submission packet 
or in the outside world where you're doing a show and you see somebody, you're like, he's got what it would take to be a writer on a show. What are the things that somebody who's been doing it such a long time is looking for from comedians? Um, it's very simple. It's uh, good punchlines. It's everything else is not important. So every joke is sort of a misdirect. Like you think you're talking about one thing, but you're talking about something else, or you're taking two ideas and you're putting them together, or there's just a million formulas. But if somebody has a punchline that catches my eye and I'm like, oh, this is making me laugh. I didn't see this coming. Or, wow, that is a smart take on it. That's all it is. It's There's no, like, like oh, these this setups have to be totally in the voice of Jimmy Fallon. It, did, it didn't matter. But it was just, it was all about the punchline. That's good to know. So it's more you're looking at more of somebody who understands joke structure than the content of the jokes itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good. That's good to know. I think that's very promising for a lot of comedians because I'm a big fan especially when I do like workshops with other comedians, uh, I always try to focus on what the structure of the jokes mm-hmm. are. So that's good to know. Not that I'm going to be a monologue writer or anything like that. It's a good, it's an, it's a really tough job, but uh, it takes a specific kind of person. And I only lasted a year in that job. Like I could, I couldn't do it, but it takes a specific kind of like get up and early in the morning and go to work kind of guy. And I'm a sleep till 11, <laughs> then take a nap, then get up. You know, I'm that kind of guy. It's definitely monologue writing is definitely more the business of comedy type uh, personality and less the art of comedy kind of person. I don't know if that's true because I've met some very creative people that they just can do it. They just have this they go into this mode and it's just crazy. There was I was once writing jokes for a show called Politically Incorrect. Bill Maher, yeah. There was a guy, Chris Case was his name, and Bill Maher was like, can we have any, can we please have a joke about uh, Bill Clinton in Ireland? How hard is that? Ireland is drinking. Come on. So he, we close the door. It's just the two of us. And I'm like frozen with fear. And Chris is like, I'm like, which was making it impossible for me to write any. He was like, how many jokes has he already come up with? And like within 10 minutes, he had, he had about eight jokes and it was like, Oh my God. Okay. Okay, this is this is a machine. As someone who has w- both worked in the late night uh, TV mm-hmm. show realm and the person who's also performed on late night TV shows as a comedian, do you think, and as a historian of com- of comedy, because there was a time where being on the Tonight Show was the it was going to launch your career. It could launch your career. A lot of people did the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson that his careers were not launched. Just say so really? that. Oh, yeah. That's like a common myth that I talk about in the book that, yes, there was the Roseanne and Gary Shanling and Seinfeld. And obviously, Freddie Prinze was a famous one. But there was dozens, dozens of comedians that would do the show. And they, yeah, they may be able to raise their rate on the road a little bit. But for some reason, or even do the show multiple times, but for some reason, didn't break through at all. And just doing the Tonight Show became, as I write in my book, uh, like a great thing for your family and friends. Like, you know, it's like a bucket list accomplishment, but just ultimately a wonderful line in your introduction when you go up on stage as a comic. See, that's fascinating to hear because we keep like I love that you're debunking myths with this book because that's all we keep hearing is like, oh, the Tonight Show was what everybody wanted and Tonight Show was going to make you. And that's what I'm wondering now is because there's so many more late night outlets for stand up comedians and there's tons of other 
um, outlets for them to hear people like everyone right now. The big thing is everyone's like, Oh, Joe, you get on Joe Rogan experience and that's going to make your career. Mm -hmm. Uh, You get on this show and that's going to make you, you get on AGT and it's going to make your career. So with all these other avenues, does the late night set really matter that much for a Not as much as it did during the days of Johnny Carson. I mean, that was the height of it in the seventies and early eighties, definitely the height of it. But even in the 60s, Carson had some sway. But at the point when Carson started, don't forget, there was still the Ed Sullivan show. So that was three times or four times as many people were watching the Ed Sullivan show than were watching uh, The Tonight Show out of New York. Um, But now, no, it's so diffused. Like most people, I think a lot of people might, more people might see your set if you do, let's say, Colbert, when you post it on YouTube and then it lives there for a little bit. So... No, it's a whole different situation. And I know some comics who don't even try to create like that was a uh, that was an assignment when you were starting out as a comedian. When I was like, you have to have these six minute tight sets ready to go for the Tonight Show or for anything else. And now I know comedians are just like, no, I'm not even trying to think about breaking up my act into little six minute things. I'd rather I'd rather just like concentrate on doing a special and put it up on YouTube and and take it from there. So do you think uh, that there are uh, more advantageous platforms and outlets for comedians? Oh my God. Are you kidding me? Yeah, of course there's look what happened over the pandemic. Look, well, look at two people. Ziwa. I don't know if you know, I don't know if you're familiar with her. She had a, a, an interview show on Instagram live. She now has a, showtime variety show that she's hosting okay that's from she also did other things but she did that and obviously sarah cooper did a lip sync of into her phone into this thing and then uh next thing you know she has not only a netflix special but a cbs sitcom pilot as well that's just been greenlit so that's as powerful as anything that's happened with johnny garson yeah no you're right so do you, th- it, 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 with that, do you think that's been because of the natural progression of comedy and technology, or do you think the pandemic has um, made that thing go up, uh, made that, that the, the different platforms um, come to fruition faster and earlier? That was almost a sentence. I like the way you kind of struggled <laughs> with it, but you got it out. I'm the same way. I'm like in the middle of saying something all of a sudden like, ah, I'm, I'm going to be able to get to the finish line. I'm stumbling people. Are, oh, I'm falling. My pants are okay. This is the way it works. Yes. A hundred percent. Of course. Great question. Yes. All of these platforms, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, uh, YouTube, especially, I don't know much about Snapchat because I still don't understand what that is and why people would want something that, and then go, is gone. So, but yeah, so all of those, all of those platforms, you can, you can reach the world. People will, if they like it, they can retweet it. So it's in a way even more powerful than what happened with Freddie Prince on the tonight show or with, you know, Roseanne Barr or Stephen Wright. So it's, um, I don't, yeah, it's just, and this is one of the themes of my book. Sorry, I keep talking about it. I don't have to. Like, We can talk about anything else. I don't care. Oh, no, please. I'm going to ask you it's, questions about the book later on. We're, we're leading into the book conversation. One of the themes of my book is that comedians, since they started, and again, we go back to Mark Twain era in my book, 
uh, have been adapting to technology. So this is a new, this isn't a new story. This is just now there's, I mean, who would have ever imagined that you could broadcast a show from your bedroom to the entire world, to the entire world. So that's what, that's where we're at now. Broadcasting from your bedroom to the rest of the world. Who knew Wayne's world was ahead of the curve on that? <laughs> I think it was a basement. I think it was their basement. <laughs> but yeah, so that I'm glad to see that. Uh, Cause during the pandemic, obviously pandemic comedy, zoom comedy, stuff like that is a subject that's co- has come up in a lot of my interviews. And so far, you know, I'm glad that you're someone who's pro seemingly through conversation right now is pro that kind of stuff because some comedians aren't, they're just like, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of comedians are like, Oh, it's not real comedy. It's not the same thing. I'm not going to do it. It's not going to stick around. So it's nice to talk to somebody who is also embracing that comedy, especially someone who's a historian of comedy because you know, you're someone who has looked through the adults of standup comedy history and it's very easy for you just to be able, hey, this is when comedy was the true, truest and realest art form. <laughs> and you're not that. And, I, and I'm, I'm happy about that. Not even close. It's evolutionary, period. Yeah, no question, no question about it. And I agree with those comics. It's not stand-up the way you remember it. It's definitely not stand-up. But I remember a time, or I've certainly read about a time, when record albums came out. And all the nightclub comedians, Joey Bishops and stuff like that, were like, well, this isn't stand-up. What Dick, you know, uh, Shelly Berman is doing or Bob Newhart is doing. You know, that was Bob Newhart's first time in a nightclub, that recording. And it ended up, you know, winning the Grammy, winning record of the year. So, like, there's always sort of an, a person who's like, this is the way it was when I started. And now it's morphine and I don't want to have anything to do with it. And... But all you have to do is look at those two people. Yeah. Ziwa, Ziway, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. And Sarah Cooper, just two of many examples of, of that. That's excellent. Now, as someone who's a comedian, uh, you, you yeah. teach at a, at a university, comedy at a university. Uh, you're a writer, mm-hmm. comedy historian. How do you address the issue of, because we're in this time and age, cancel culture versus all yeah, right. PC, yeah. Or, or the conversation of PC is killing comedy because I remember the movie PCU, you know, which with Jeremy Pivot, which stood for politically correct university. And the whole movie is about riling up against PC culture. And it was like, Oh, you can't say anything anymore. And I'm like, that movie was 1993. It was right. almost 30 years ago. Are we just perpetuating the same, same thing over and over. No, 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 no. Look, look, it's definitely a real thing. There's there's no doubt about it. There's people that are super sensitive about certain words or certain subject matters, and they will come after you and try to destroy your career if they can. That is for real. I've seen it happen. But my feeling about this whole thing is like, it's terrible. I feel like it's anti-comedy. It's anti-free speech. But it's like an annoyance. Like, it's not going to kill comedy. It might slightly adjust it a little bit, a little bit, but it's, it's just not going to kill it. Comedy is too strong, but it's like that. It's like an annoyance as opposed to the roadblock and we're done doing stand-up. You know, I, I just feel like stand-up comedy is stronger, way stronger than that. Do you think that there's at the same time two different things going on where between a cancel culture and also 
consequence culture where people are trying oh. to hold people accountable for their bad actions but while all so at the same time there's people who are trying to cancel comedians for taking things that are out of context and doing it erroneously do you think there's both things happening at the same time yeah it's like look i'm a free speech advocate like i'm one of those i'm an old school aclu like i'm a big believer in in it i think it's healthy i think it's uncomfortable sometimes but the the other side of it i think is worse so and people are like i'm like yeah once you say something, you have to deal with the consequences of what you say. The person that is upset with you also has free speech. They also have free speech. So it's, uh, I'd, I'd just rather see it out in the open like that. But yes, I've never heard of consequence culture. Is that something no, that's you kind came of the new with? word right now is when they're like, oh, instead of looking at his cancel culture, look at his cancel uh, consequence culture. Because I have, when the conversation comes up, I lean towards, We've been fighting these kinds of battles for a long time. This is not going to kill comedy. PC's not killing comedy. People could still do and say what they want. But the people who are doing real harm are finally having their feet held to the fire. Example, uh, you know, the, the most recently was Chris D'Elia would come up. Uh, Chris D'Elia, when you look at it, was objectively, as a 30-year-old man, private messaging teenage underage girls and saying, hey, let's get together. Hey, I really like you. And it was being, you know, his feet's being held to the fire for the things that he did. Uh, I have a hard time of thinking of someone who's been canceled, who've been right properly canceled for not doing, you know, for not doing the thing that they did. Like Bill Cosby, you can say Bill Cosby is a great comedian. Part of the reason why I got into the comedy is because I grew up on Bill Cosby's specials mm -hmm. and telling his jokes. But I also told Dennis Leary jokes when I was in middle school too. So I can understand, you know, I, I, I can really put away the art and, and the person. But I mean, 37 people have come out and said, hey, he drugged and, and did sexually inappropriate things. That's not, uh, you know, the context, there is no context there. There's a man who did something bad. He's now being punished for it. Um, right. So like, did Shane Gillis really get canceled when he's making more money now as a headliner after the controversy than he would have as a writer on SNL? You know? So, Personally, that's the way I look at, at the two things is like, I don't, the only people who are getting canceled are the people who did something that, to earn those consequences personally. I love it. I'm not going to jump into this because it's too fraught and I, I don't want people uh, well, to come after well, me. Let's, let's ask this because you're current, not only do you, you know, are you a comedy historian, you're now currently working on a documentary about George Carlin. Yes. Yes. You heard about that. Uh -huh. huh? George Carlin, yeah. who's a, an incredible, incredibly famous voice for both free speech and riling up against the system and riling up against pop culture. In your opinion, you don't have to say this is what it is. If your opinion on someone who by now probably knows a lot about George Carlin, if George Carlin was alive today, seeing things going on with PC, can, uh, PC culture, cancel culture, freedom of speech, but also you know, wokeism, where do you think Carlin may fall in those things? What was that movie we were just talking about? PCU? Mm -hmm. Was that the yes. name of that movie? Okay. Well, there were, this debate was happening in the 90s as well. And so Carlin was alive during, he died in 2008. Mm -hmm. So he talked about it quite a bit. And he was, like myself, a big believer in it's not the word, it's the intent. It's the intent behind the word. Like, if you can show someone is like, oh, this is a horrible racist using these words. And then you're like, oh, okay, I understand that. But he said, and this is, this is what I've always loved. He said, um, 
that political correctness, I, I want to get this right. I want to get it's it's gonna be a paraphrase, it's gonna be a paraphrase now. Um, is especially insidious because it comes under the guise of tolerance. It comes under the guise of, oh, we're just trying to make this a nicer thing. But in the weird way, what you're really doing is you are controlling how other people speak. You are being authoritarian in that regard with this. So I think he would be obviously horrified at anyone who was a racist. And he dealt with those people all the time. I, I think at his core, he was all about words, that guy. He was all about the language and he hated the euphemisms. He hated even not being able to say like the R word, like retarded. I'm saying it now. I hope I don't get canceled. <laughs> like he, he would, he was like, we can handle it. We can handle calling a kid fat as opposed to, you know, physically challenged or whatever, <laughs> whatever euphemism it was. He would say he did a whole routine. Just look it up. It's on YouTube. It's called euphemisms. He hated it. He hated that people would use the language to disguise and create a, a different world. He's basically like, we can handle it. We can handle it. Again, I would never, ever be so bold <laughs> to speak on behalf of what I think George Carlin might say, but I'll tell you what he did say under similar circumstances. But I love the way he thought about it. He liked, he liked, he thought the idea of controlling someone's speech was insidious because I don't know if even is insidious. It was a word even stronger than insidious because it came under the guise of being polite and tolerant. I, I mean, I grew up, I live in Boston and I find this town to be incredibly racist, but in a different kind of racism where yes. like, I grew up in Baltimore, born and raised for 31 years in Baltimore. I lived oh. amongst people of color because you could not yeah. live amongst people of color. And I never realized how much I was until I moved to a city here. That's so incredibly white. Um, but I find and can you know, I just and talk liberal. about Boston for a little bit? One of the great comedy towns in the history of stand up, obviously huge. But I find Boston, whenever I go up there, even the neighborhoods today, I feel like are very segregated. You're like, oh, you're in this town. It's white. And you're not you're not obviously Roxbury. And, but it's really interesting what goes on up there. And it's a crazy blue state. Well, it's blue on the eastern side. Like, if you look at eastern Massachusetts, like Boston, Cape Cod, it's very blue. Yeah, but when you start going, like, central Mass and western Mass, oh, yeah. it's very red. Yeah, it's, yeah. like, new. I keep saying New England is just the south with a different accent, like, for the most oh, that's part. That's hilarious. <laughs> but, yeah, I, uh, I, I've, like, my friends from D.C. and Baltimore, when they come up here, they come, they, when I meet up with them, they're like, where are they hiding the people of color? It's very <laughs> uncomfortable here. And they're white people too. It's just, you don't realize it. it but the, the, the racism I find here is to be very insultingly sympathetic to people of color. Right. Um, patronizing. Which, which annoys me. Yeah, the patronizing. That's yeah. the perfect word that I usually use. And thank you for reminding me of it. So on the subject of uh, Boston, I was going to ask you about this uh, because I am a big fan of the history of stand-up podcast that you and Andrew Steven were doing. Listened to every episode, loved it. Ah, oh, thank you. You went into deep dives into Nerd Melt. You went into deep dives into the Chicago scene. You did the you know the the Chitlin South uh you know uh, black comedy scene. And what I was waiting to hear was the Boston New England comedy scene episode, and I never got it. In the book, or is there is there a conversation no, or a chapter? No, I mean I mention it. I say, I say that San Francisco and Boston are the two were the two biggest outside of New York and L.A. comedy hubs during the comedy boom. For a number of reasons, 
I just feel like there's an incredible documentary called When Stand Up Stood Out that tells the story better than I can. And it's so complex. And it's like all of those guys, Lenny and all of those dudes that were up there. And even Dennis still does that once a year. Doesn't he do that big Cam Neely? Comics come yeah, home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For other fans of the podcast, what are we going to be getting uh, in general with That's the book a great that we weren't question. getting? I, I think the book is sort of based on the podcast. I, we don't really talk about Artemis Ward. We're, basically, we talk about those four forefathers. We did it on the podcast. So I just it's just in written form, and I think it's a little breezier than the podcast. You know, we really, like in the podcast, we really didn't go into the nightclub era that much or the cat skills, which I talk about briefly. And my, specifically Miami Beach, what a big comedy scene that was in the 40s and the 50s during the summer, excuse me, during the winter, mm. there was horse racing down there. All the young comics were, would go down to Miami Beach and play these clubs down there. And it was just a wild, incredible scene. Yeah, so there's it, there's just more than what's in the podcast. But everything that I think we covered in the podcast is in that book. It's good to know. So it's if you're a fan of the podcast, the book has more of the things that you are a fan of in it. So right. As a man who is well-versed in all genres and timing of stand-up comedy, you personally yourself, which era of stand-up would you most like to have? Ah, uh, that's a great... Well, I am, as someone who, I mean, if I could say the future, it would be that, obviously, because I'm super curious of whether this moment right now where comedians, there's something called front-facing comedians. Do you know what that no, is? I've never heard of front-facing comedians. Okay, a front-facing comedian is like Sarah Cooper, is someone who just uses the front-facing camera on their phone and does comedy directly to it, either a monologue or a rant or something like that and sends it out. That's no audience, no club, no cover charge, no drink, just this, okay? So those are called front-facing comedians. And obviously, a couple of them are now on Showtime and CBS. So, and it is a very direct, probably the most direct way yet devised by humanity for a comedian to showcase their talent, right? Here's a perfect example. If you've ever had to make a tape for somebody to submit, like, how hard is that? It's never always there's somebody heckling you the moment or the guy who went up before you. It was like throwing around F-bombs and it kind of ruins the whole room. So just to get a tape that showcases you at your best in a club is difficult. So that's all taken out of the, the equation with front facing. You do eight takes and you're like the eighth one. OK, this is good. And I send it out and we'll see what happens. So I don't know if we're at an inflection point right now where it's like, Oh, is stand-up comedy going to be seen as like, oh, this is kind of like this old-fashioned-y way of communicating with people, like uh, old-timey from a, another century, from the 20th century, they were really into this. And now we're into something much more direct. And I'm still, they're still, front-facing comedians are still entertaining people. Yep. They're still doing it. So it's like, what is the goal of it? Or will it be like, once fans who are used to watching their comedy on their phone and stuff go to an actual club and feel the juice of, oh, my God, this is a communal experience. This is this laughter is contagious. This is like I'm in something real that's real and organic because the comedian is responding to our laughter and he's riding that. And it's a give and take situation. You've obviously been on stage and watch comedians 
when it's working and you're like, okay, this is kind of a magical thing. It's like a real, so I don't know. I don't know what people are going to decide or it's going to be, a, I, I have a hunch it's going to be a combination of the two, <laughs> right? Because it already is a combination of the two. So I don't know if it's going to be a 60-40. I don't know if it's going to be a 20-80. I'm, so that's where I would love to be in the future. I'd love to see in 10 years where this is. Since we're talking about the future, are you currently taking notes on the <laughs> world that we're in now uh, or have plans on taking notes of historic com- comedy events and achievements to write the next book or to write the next episode? Probably not. Probably not. Um, in fact, at the end of my book, I, I, I sort of phrase that question is how the book ends. And I say that that's for the next comedy historian too. Cause I just want my book to be like, Oh, this is the base knowledge you have to have to know the history of standup. Like you got to know about Steve Martin. You got to know about Jack Benny. You're going to have to know about, Mom's Mabley. You're going to have to know like who these people were and as important where they worked. Like, was it in a vaudeville theater? Was it in a nightclub? Was it in a little coffee house in Greenwich village? Was it at, you know, starting in the sixties at a comedy club, which never existed before then. Like, um, uh, or is it a rock club or is it at Madison square garden? So it's a combination of knowing where this comedy took place and who these the main comedians were in each era. Well, what I want to know is, as somebody who's a historian of of comedy, knows a lot about comedians mm. and who, you know, I'm sure you saw and can identify the people who helped birth the change uh, that we're seeing now. Mm. Are there is there a Mount Rushmore, so to speak, of comedians uh, of the past couple decades that you think are the reason why we were able to pave a path to people like Sarah Cooper and Z-Way and more front-facing comedy. Oh, who were like a, a hybrid comedian yeah. who were like on stage and also did. Well, if you really think about it, think about Netflix for a second. Mm-hmm. Okay. You had these huge Netflix specials that totally made John Mulaney, Ali Wong, Bill Burr. Okay. Let's just take those three guys. Let's leave Chappelle and the rest of them out of it. So what, what are we watching there? What, like, why is that so popular? Like basically the film version of a comedy album. And then in a way that's not, it's sort of halfway between like comedian live. Cause it's a live show and you watching it on you. Cause you could watch that special on your phone. You could digest that comedy through your phone by yourself. So I'm saying already, once you put your comedy online or make a film of it or something, it's already become a slightly different thing than, oh, that moment in the club. In the same way that Peter LaSalle from The the Tonight Show coming to Boston to look for colleges for his kids, dropping into one of the comedy clubs, watching all the great Boston locals and picking Stephen Wright out. And I have one quote. I don't have many quotes in my book, but he says that experience changed his existence on the planet Earth. That one Tonight Show. On the subject of this book, and as the comedy historian and an expert in comedy. Can I just say that I'm an expert in the history of stand-up, not maybe an expert in comedy? Because there's a lot of people who are like really know comedy theory, like, and they talk about it for hours. Like, that's not me. I'm, I'm a very intuitive sort of comedian, so... 
I know it's a slight little thing, but I just want to, I don't want to overstate what I think I, my skills Fair are. Fair enough. Uh, more as an, a historian and, and, and knower of the comedy industry and stand-up industries. Yeah, yeah. As someone uh, yep. who knows about all of it, is it stand-up one word, stand-up, or stand-up two words? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> That's the best one. Of course, this is, I do it. It can be either or either. Those are, again. I, we do it for the book. It's stand dash up. So throughout the book, it's all stand dash up. Yeah. Were there times where you wrote different ones and an editor had to come back and, and say, we need to decide on one. No, or the because other. the logo of the podcast is stand up one word. So it's like, I live in this very ambiguous world. It's not great. It's, <laughs> thank you. That's my Achilles heel. And thanks for noticing it. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Well, the book comes out March 15th. And of course, the paperback version, uh, a physical copy is available anywhere that you can get books in the world. And of course, if your bookstore doesn't have it, go up to them, ask for it. They'll get it for you. And of course, it's available online as a Kindle uh, or non-printed version. (laughs) I don't even know. Uh, Do we have a name for for digital books is that just it did i just come up with it i think they call it ebooks ebooks okay yeah so it's available in ebook version everywhere ebooks are available which is the internet right and is there any hopes of putting an audiobook yes yes that's gonna happen that will be out if not the 15th definitely by the end of the month okay so it's already being recording it guess who's doing it uh that's what i was gonna ask you next oh you're recording all of it okay it's gonna be me and my stupid voice (laughs) okay so if this sounds annoying to you just do not buy that audio book. It's going to be a couple hours of it. Someone, you know, I find myself to be a student of comedy. That's one reason I became a comedian because I grew up in between the, you know, the just the, you know, I grew up, I was born in 81. So I was coming up of age right when the bubble ended and I've been a part of the beginning mm-hmm. of the new bubble. And I loved comedy in between those two eras. And to answer the question that earlier that I that asked you of what era of comedy would you like to be in? That's where I would have wanted to be in, in right between the end, the end bubble and the new bubble, just because. So you're talking about the late, early nineties, late eighties. Yeah. That's where I would have loved where? to, because I feel like you had a better opportunity. You know, there wasn't as many opportunities out there, but the ones that were out there were more significant in that era growing up. Cause like I grew up and I could see stand up on TV all the time in the mid nineties. It just all went away. But as someone who yourself is a historian of comedy and myself, who I feel as well as a historian of comedy, uh, unofficially, nowhere near on your level. But uh, do you see jokes where you're like, my, my, my big pet peeve, for example, is when I see somebody come out with an, you know, like a 23 year old kid come out with an OJ Simpson trial joke. And it's like in th- the, the, the that trial was tw- 30, almost 30 years ago. How do you confidently think that you're going to tell an OJ trial joke that no one else has told over 30 years? Do you see that sometimes where people are retreading topics and you're like, how can you really think you're the most original on this? Or do you see it as, hey, they're not doing an original topic or joke, but they came up with something and that the stru- learning the structure of a joke mm-hmm. is more important than the originality of it? I mean, it's, that's, there's a lot to unpack there, but I'll, I'll say this. I try, I love stand up from open mic to Mulaney. Like I love the whole, the breadth of it, every level of development. I can enjoy comedians who are just starting out. So I, I don't look at it that way. I look at it more like, oh, this comedian is going through a development and he's trying to figure out. And I don't know why he would want to tell an OJ joke. I mean, it doesn't have any kind of topical 
juice to it. No pun intended. Uh, so, but it does. That was good. I'm not, I'm a natural, I'm a natural. Uh, but I will say this, that I find most comedians, and I think this wave will change, are now very much about themselves. Like that is their topic. Is this, this body, a thing, I'm Asian, I'm a Muslim, a thing, I'm a girl, a thing. Like that seems like identity comedy seems very strong these days. And a lot of comedians sort of filter their comedy through that. So that's just one way of doing it. But uh, that to me, that's more what I'm seeing these days is it's very autobiographical and what I like to call confessional also. I don't know what kind of stand-up you do, but a lot of comedians are like, something that was like embarrassing or humiliating about themselves is now fodder for comedy. Is the thing I write right at the beginning of the book, and I think is crucial, is that comedy is generational. It's for the people you're doing it for right now at this time. So Jack Benny isn't trying to entertain people in 2021. And he's trying to entertain people in 1932. And so the jokes and the style that he says may not translate to you. Same true with Lenny Bruce. Same might be true with Steve Martin. It doesn't matter. It's like, that's just what it is. So it's very important to like when you're, if you're interested in the history of standup, I mean, there's enough standups now where you can be into comedy and not care at all about Sam Kennison. Couldn't care less about Jake Johansson, which is fine or Dimitri Martin, or any uh, comedians from the 90s that you might have seen when you were a kid. So that's that's a key part of the whole thing, that the styles change, the rhythms of the jokes change, the misdirects become, I think, a little better, to tell you the truth, as, as time goes on. And then ultimately, you get to decide who you want to listen to. So, so that's a really important thing. So I'm just surprised this kid wants to do an OJ joke. That's, I guess... <laughs> Or sometimes I also see like memes that are like a joke that I came up with, like a joke I heard in middle school, but then it's in meme form. It's like, how is anybody like, I just see jokes often recycled, Mm -hmm. recycled jokes like that, that just make me go. And sometimes I have to realize that my knowledge of comedy is not representative to everybody. So sometimes, you know, just because I heard a joke before doesn't mean everyone else has already also heard it. Those are just, I hear those things. And it's like, I just sigh loudly to myself. It's like, how could you have gotten this far in your life? and never heard this joke. And that you think that it's so great that you great. And that you're the first to think of it. Clearly you're not generational parallel thinking sometimes disappoints me. That's what I, I, I might be trying to get. I know to. I tried. I know exactly what you're saying. And my advice to you is just like, that's what it is. That's what it's always been. Like that was going on in the seventies. That was going on. So it's always like that. That is part of it. Just try not to sigh. Try to be like, okay, that's classic. (laughs) Thank you for helping me walk through my own personal issues. I don't want you to be a bundle (laughs) of anxiety because some kid uh, did a meme that you're like, oh yeah, I remember this from middle school. (laughs) Well, now you can add a new uh, title. You're a comedian, actor, comedy historian, and now comedy therapist uh, for helping me through it. my Have comedy I been issues. helpful? Have I been... <laughs> well, Wayne, it was great talking to you. Thank you so much for doing this today, and I uh, wish all the success for the book because 
Uh, I if, I look forward to doing a show with you, right? Yeah, so, Let's do some gigs. Yeah, hopefully we'll we'll cross paths when we're allowed to actually cross paths with humans again in the real world. I yeah, I think it's gonna be sooner. I think it's gonna be sooner than you think. Okay, tell me about your sweatshirt. What is Laugh Boston? Oh, that's the that? uh, comedy club out here. God, I that's the other level room. It's tell in me, the where hotel. is it? Where is it? Was it at an old comedy club? Was no, it? No, it's um, it's in the Westin like, Hotel. Are any of those eighties clubs still around? Nick's? Constant Comedy is that still there? Nick's is still around. Um, the Comedy Connection has moved to Providence. Okay. Um, there was a version of it up here. Um, and then, was there, is the Ding Ho still around? Is that no, thing? Ding Ho's not, the comedy studio is still around. In fact, that's moved to Somerville. The catch? I remember cat, they had a catch up there for catch a while, Eisenhower right? Catch no longer around either now. So basically the two oldest institutions are uh, Nick's Comedy Stop, which has been around since Nick's, like 77. right. Which is basically just a pop-up uh, pop-up in a nightclub. They come in, you do they do the show, and they literally push people out the door before so they can just turn over the place to turn into a, a dance club. Uh, and then you have the comedy studio, which was birthed out of the ding ho. Uh, so that's Rick right. Jenkins. And uh, does chance still play up there? Does chance he Langston he... still does the comedy studio? I, and he's oh, still doing, I, I don't know how long he's been doing this joke. Who is, who is the rat? Oh, go, wait, 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 go tell me, tell me, sorry to interrupt. Say no, it, no, Blake Langston still does this joke where he's like, shit like his whole punch up is just going shit up and then he calls back to just shit up over and over and people eat it up and i'm like all right i mean if it still works do it bro who else from this who else from the like the 80s 90s is around is uh well crimmins was yeah you know, obviously yeah yeah, uh, until I, he, until I, just, I had a great time with him right on when he was doing the screening of his movie out here we hung out quite a bit it was really fun um yeah, i was sad to see him so go Krim- because he was is Tingle? Is Tingle still oh, around? Jimmy Tingle, is he yeah. alive? He, not only is he still around and doing comedy, he ran for like lieutenant governor of of oh. Suffolk County. Oh right, 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 <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, that's right because he was in the politics. The club he used to own in Davis Square mm-hmm. um, has since turned into a different theater club called the Rockwell. So they do like mostly music, but they occasionally do uh, comedy there and stuff. And it's a beautiful place and and awesome. It's just hard to find because it's like you have to go down down a set of stairs which what comedy club is not in a basement but when you go down the stairs there's this really hip new bar to the left and then the theaters to the right and most people don't even know the theater is there to the right and they mistake it for the somerville theater no that's funny of course it's just comedy it's like it's it's so humiliating sometimes let me ask you something else um, i write in the book about the boston comedy scene briefly and i said what made it special was it was a a weird combination of um, townies and a bunch of college students. Like that's what kind of makes this like that whole scene like go it's, crazy. It's more transplants than it is townies now. It's it a, is? it's far more transplants than it is townies. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. wow. I mean, a uh, lot of the townies are still around. Like Tony V's still around and, and crushing. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Lenny yeah. Clark's back here uh you know he i guess he gave up on that legend right yeah yeah. i I don't know if you've seen him but he has lost so much weight he is ripped like lenny clark lenny clark is ripped he is ripped like he is buff as a mother like it is weird to see and uh like he'll still do you know he'll still do you know he still does the uh the route one soggish uh clubs uh calhoun and giggles mostly well giggles i don't think he does calhoun because his brother books giggles, which is like Prince's Pizza, 
Um, okay. But it's Giggles Comic Club. And they did, they tried to do the like outdoor tented comedy, which is like, if you have four, a tent that has four walls, you're still indoors. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Okay, okay. All right. Well, this was so fun. Thank you for letting me reminisce and ask you some questions. I really no, please, anytime. It. Anytime you, you want, you can reach out to me and be like, hey, what's up with that? I'm, now, granted, I've only been in Boston eight years. Um, right, right, right. You're from Baltimore, right? Yeah. Born and raised in Baltimore, started there, moved here, and was like, oh, it's so much better like here. in Baltimore? I'm always curious about all of this stuff. Uh, what's, what was is there it? It was just Cap dirty. Cities? Is that still there? Which one? Wasn't there Cap Cities? Wasn't that in Baltimore? Uh, for isn't a Cap bit? City Austin? Oh, okay, okay. Cap Maybe City, I'm yeah. making a mistake. Uh, Go in ahead. Baltimore, we have Magoobies. You have the Baltimore Comedy Factory, which is where I started, which is mostly an urban club, but occasionally. Um, I, actually, like three weeks after I moved here, I used to work at the Baltimore Comedy Factory. My roommate was a doorman. I used to be a doorman. I would occasionally come back and help like DJ or do uh, stuff. So about three to four weeks after I moved here to Boston, I see a tweet from Bill Bellamy, Bellamy talking about how people are are stabbing motherfuckers over the price of chicken wings. And I look into it. Bill Bellamy was at the Baltimore Comedy Factory. Somebody had a Bill Bellamy show on like a Thursday night, got mad about the price of their bill, and stabbed three doormen. Like, luckily, it was not serious. They were all minor injuries. Everyone was fine. And I knew one of the, the, the three guys that got stabbed because I hadn't really been involved with the club and all. And I'm like, that's just, that's Baltimore for you. Like, there's nothing else to say, but that that's Baltimore. You go to a comedy show, you might get stabbed. Why'd you move to Boston? Why'd Uh, you move to Boston? I burned, uh, I ran out of bridges to burn in radio. Okay. Okay. No, a job opened up. I worked for iHeartRadio for 15 years and a job opened up here that was full-time benefits, the whole nine. Oh, I gotcha. Okay. Okay. My buddy had moved up here and he's like, the job's yours. It's a, it's an easy go. And so I did. You know, what's an interesting thing for you to maybe look into is, do you know about the George Carlin Boston radio situation? No, the George Carlin Boston radio situation. No, what is that? Yeah, yeah. He was in, that's where he met his comedy partner was up here. I don't know the call letters of the station, but I'm going to say maybe 58 or 59. He was uh, briefly up here in Boston and then got in trouble for bringing like a news van down to New York to buy pot or something. (laughs) It's like, it's insane. You know, he's such a stupid rebel, that dude. Uh, but he he did Boston radio. I did not know that. Um, I hadn't yeah. really like there was uh, like did not know that yeah, around. Yeah, I think shortly before his death, I kind of just for no reason stopped paying attention to George Carlin what he was doing. I don't know why. It just he went out of like just what he, what he was doing a couple years before his death just kind of just moved out of my my zeitgeist vision. And of course, and, yeah. of course. Well, he was you know. Old guy. But I'm going to look into All that right. now. I'm going to get back. I'm going to get back to work. Oh, you've been super generous with your time. Thank you so much oh, for doing it. Of course, Dennis. I love we'll, it. I love we'll it. We'll talk it. soon, sir. Thanks for, thank you for having me. Be, a pleasure. Uh, be safe. What a nice guy. God, he was super cool. I am so happy. Ah.